Let's pray. Lord, in these moments, may your spirit infuse your word and make us like you. Because that's what we really need. May your spokesperson not get in the way this morning, Lord. Love you. Amen. Sabbath. What's, what's Sabbath? Is it a day off? Is it going to church? Is it a day owned by the NFL? Is it a day when you have to wait a long time at lunch because of the Baptists? Is it the second day of the weekend? Is it the, um, the day you lament that you go back to school or work tomorrow? Is it a day when Chick-fil-A is closed? Actually, that's not rhetorical. The answer is yes, if you didn't know. Um, so, more importantly, what in the world does Sabbath have to do with us? In our culture, Sabbath is known as something that Jewish people and churchgoers pay attention to. But the fact is, it's something that almost no one pays attention to in our culture. But despite the trivialization of Sabbath, it's important to know that Sabbath was the first institution established in the universe. Did you know that? It came before marriage. It came before family. It came before everything that people did. Um, remarkably, Sabbath came long before calendars, jobs, schedules, meetings, wristwatches, and alarm clocks. Sabbath is, in fact, all of the seventh rest cycles, and there are three, and we'll talk about those this morning, they're actually foundational laws that govern all of life. So is it surprising that the church has forgotten it? Way too deep to think about. So we transition that into a day off. Um, so there are three. This is really important and fundamental. Here's where your, here's where your, um, your blanks start in your notes. There are three kinds of biblical law. And here's your first blank. The first kind is natural law. And it turns out there's two kinds of natural law. The first are the physical laws. So gravity is a, a typical example of the natural law. It's, it's how the universe runs. But the other kind of natural law is it's, it is the way humans were supposed to behave and be before Moses ever came along with the Mosaic law. So let me give you an example. Everybody knew that Jacob was a schmuck for stealing the birthright, even though that was 500 years before Moses came along and said, don't steal. Everybody knew already, because that's not how people are supposed to be, okay? Um, everybody knew that uh, everyone, everyone knew that you don't commit adultery before Moses came along. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew that committing murder was wrong before Moses said, don't murder, okay? So that's the natural law. The second kind of law, write it in, write it in is the Mosaic law, or the law of Moses. And um, only Jewish people are subjected to the Mosaic law. And you find this, so you find the, the first, did I just blow by a key concept? Oh man, the melancholies will go bonkers. Uh, key concept number one, let me write this in, I have you write this in. All creation, including Christians, are subjected to God's natural law. You got that? Everybody. Everybody's subjected to natural law. If you have a believer and a non-believer who fall off a 500-foot cliff at the same time, the believer doesn't fall at a tenth of the velocity and land nicely because they follow Jesus. They both die at the same time on impact. Okay, now the eternal consequence of that fall is different, but, um, and, and you find the natural law in the book of Genesis. 
okay? Second is Mosaic law. Um, the Jewish people are under it, and you find the Mosaic law in the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. After Genesis, the next four, Deuteron Exodus through Deuteronomy, um, are where you get the Mosaic law, and then the rest of the Old Testament expounds and expands upon the Mosaic law. And then the third kind of uh, law is the moral law, often in the New Testament called the law of Christ. And the moral law impacts humans in one, one uh, of two, uh, two ways. If you have responded in, uh, haven't responded in grace to God's universal call uh, to save, then you're guilty that you knew even if you were born 4,000 years ago, you knew you shouldn't steal. You know the natural law. Everyone has a conscience and everyone knows the natural law and everyone knows the moral law. We're willingly ignorant when we say we don't, okay? And the word says, okay, so, and if that happens, the law is condemning. But for those who have responded in grace to the blood of Christ, it's now written on our hearts. We're a new creation. And now what we couldn't do before, which is be like Jesus, we now do by nature because he lives his holiness in us, the gospel. Um, so this leads to a question. If only Jewish people are under the Mosaic law, what about the Sabbath laws? And in fact, Paul taught on this exact issue. I don't know if you've ever seen these verses before, but look in Colossians 2 with me. Therefore, let no one act as your judge. And now he's talking in the New Testament to people who are in the New Covenant. And listen to what he says. Don't let, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or, isn't this interesting, or a Sabbath day. Don't let anybody act as your judge with respect to a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All the feasts, all the festivals, every day, every, everything in the word was all a, a, a word picture of the coming real thing, okay? So don't let anybody act as your judge with respect to a Sabbath day, and to which we have said yee-haw. Um, see, a pivotal question. Since only the Jews are under the law of Moses, is the Mosaic law irrelevant to new covenant believers? Well, absolutely not, because Notice what we've learned about the three kinds of law here. Here's Moses, and if Moses reflects either the natural law, sorry if you're not a pharmacist, you can't read this, but it makes me feel better to write it anyway. Moses, if Moses reflects the natural law, like don't murder, of course teaching the Mosaic law is directly relevant to the whole world because it relates to the natural law. It's Moses teaching the natural law, and the same thing, of course, with the moral law. So the question of, you know, do you have to follow Moses and, you know, and not commit adultery? Well, because it, it ref is reflected in the moral law, of course that teaching of Moses is directly relevant to a new covenant believers. Okay, so let's look at the fourth commandment. Here it is on the screen from Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work. I want to point something out that you may have not noticed before. The Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that's removed specifically from the moral law. Isn't that interesting? Remember, don't let anybody be your judge with respect to a Sabbath. So since it has been removed from the moral law, you know what it's done? It's created a huge amount of confusion and misunderstanding among New Covenant believers because we think the Sabbath has nothing to do with us. So here's key concept number two and why we started with understanding God's biblical law. Ready? Here it is. The foundation of the seventh rest cycles comes from God's natural law all the way back in Genesis 2, long before Moses. And although we aren't under the, law, the Mosaic law of Sabbath, our bodies are still subjected to the natural law. Don't believe it? Try that 500-foot cliff. Trust me. The trauma, I won't even have to take care of you. They just call the medical examiner, okay? So let, let's look now at the seventh rest cycles. There are actually three seventh rest cycles in the Scripture. The first one we already read, it's the weekly Sabbath. But now look with me at Le in Leviticus chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25, really early uh, in the scripture. 
And here is this amazing sabbatical command from God through Moses. Look at this, verse 3. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and uh, gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow the field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. Now take yourself back to three and a half thousand years ago, and you're gonna be going into, Moses didn't cross in with them into the land, but you're gonna be going into the land, and here's the leader saying, I'm speaking for God. When you go in, after six years, you're supposed to spend a year where you don't reap and you don't sow. And they're all sitting there thinking, Moses has finally completely lost it. He needs a CAT scan. I mean, he is out of his mind, When we go into the land, we're gonna be subsistence farmers. In a good year, it's gonna be hard to survive, okay? They didn't have tractors, right? This is three and a half thousand years ago. And he wants us to take a year off. So, what did God's people do? (laughs) Uh, God's people did what God's people always do when we don't like what he says, right? We come up with really godly religious reasons to not do what he tells us to do. So can't you just hear him? Well, here's the scoop. If we work in the seventh year, we'll have more resources to do God's will. We'll be able to tithe more. So can you note note it? I mean, we would never do that, right? Because this is renovation after all. Um, And we're Christians after all. But but they, uh, they did godly reasons for not obeying God. And so the nation never obeyed. Now we know there was always a remnant of individuals who would have obeyed the Lord always a remnant, but the nation never did. And now I'm gonna make a connection that you might have, have known anything about before. You may know that after many cycles of idolatry and disobedience in, um, in Israel and Judah, they were exiled into Babylon, okay? And in the, uh, the thing that's quite amazing is the Babylonian exile, you may not know, is directly linked to this. Look in chapter 26 of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus 26 is much like Deuteronomy 28 and several other passages of Scripture where the first half is, and if you walk with me in my ways, it's going to be amazing. This is, by the way, you'll have some of these Scriptures on magnets like with Yosemite in the background on your refrigerator, right? Everything's going to be great. I'm going to bless you. You, Your cows will have so many calves, you'll be giving them away to the Canaanites. You'll have so many. You won't know what to do with them. And then there comes the word, but, and that's, that's in verse 14 in Leviticus chapter 26, and look at this, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out all the commandments, the place tanks. Everything comes apart. But what's interesting is at the end of this, everything's gonna come apart, life's gonna be horrible <laughs> if you're not walking with me. Um, look what comes up, verse 33. You, however, I will scatter among the nations. So here, here you see the prophecy through Moses of the Babylonian exile of his people. Um, you, and they will draw out a sword after you and your, as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. <laughs> you ready? Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of desolation while you were in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. And like every prophet, now he piles on. One verse isn't enough. It takes another. Look at this. All the days of desolation, it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths. Idiots. Right? Look at this. While you were living on it. So think of all the things they could have been exiled for. By this point, the t- time it came to, they, I mean, they were sacrificing their children to the detestable God of Molech. Think of all the things that God have exiled, could have exiled them for, but the cause of the Babylonian exile was this. But what's really interesting is the length of the exile is also directly linked. You may remember Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah pre-exile prophet, and he says, you're gonna be in the, land for 70 years, and it's remarkable, to the month, 70 years before they came back. But why 70 years? Well, it turns out it wasn't, wasn't random at all. Now, for those who like biblical history, you've got a biblical timeline. For the rest of you, you've already whited out or ignored it. Um, but, but I just wanted to do a couple of things here. 
So notice, before they came to Samuel and said, we want a king, and he said, no, you don't. And he said, yes, we do. And he said, no, we don't. And he said, yes, yes, we do. He said, okay, now you're gonna have a centralized government and the king and the kingship and your society and your laws and your government should, will, should have to all be about what I want, the Lord your God. And so the king is supposed to say, you can either run me out or you can kill me, but we're gonna do what God says. Well, that happened with Saul coming, uh, uh, coming to power in 1051, but um, he didn't like some of the laws, so they didn't follow him. And from 1051, B.C. to 606 B.C., there was a kingship. 606 B.C. starts the exile, okay? And then 70 years later, they come back from the exile, okay? Um, and uh, even new math doesn't do this easily. So the question of how many Sabbaths were stolen from the land is actually easy to unpack because of the third seventh rest cycle. There's the weekly Sabbath, Every seventh year is a sabbatical, and what happens after seven sabbatical years? A jubilee year, an immediate back-to-back -back sabbatical. So, let's unpack it this way. 50, I don't know if this is in your notes, it might be, but in 50 years, look at this is really easy. In 50 years, there's seven sabbaticals, and then the 50th year is a jubilee, okay? So in 50 years, seven sabbaticals and, and a jubilee, all right? So to get up to 400 years worth, we just multiply by eight. So seven times eight is 56, and one times eight is eight. And then in 45 more years, to get up to the 445 years of the disobedient kingship where they didn't give the land its rest, you get, it takes in 45 more years, you get six more. And this is in your notes, and you should write it down because this is amazing. Guess what, 56 plus eight plus six is 70 years. Now, just for a moment, let's let us new covenant believers let this soak in, okay? 70 years were robbed from the land and in the exile, exactly 70 years happened. Since God's people wouldn't give the land its Sabbaths, God gave them back, every last one of them. And you know how he had to do it? They could have taken it as a blessing. They could have taken it as his gift. But instead, anybody got testimonies about exiles in our life? And what's incredible is this follows. So okay, now, okay, now it's a really good time in the message for a lot of you to just fess up that you're thinking, so what, right? I mean, what kind of church is this, okay? Um, so you know, the pastor's gone and look what's happened now. We're going in the tank. We're doing Leviticus, are you kidding? Okay, so now watch this, watch this. There's three kinds of biblical law, remember? Yeah, yeah, I don't wanna remember either, okay? You ready? Okay, so, so notice, is it in the law of Moses? Yes, we just read it out of Exodus chapter 20 and Leviticus chapter 25 and it's many other places. So yes, it's in the law of Moses. Is it in the moral law? Now this is really a key. Paul said, don't let anybody judge you with respect to a Sabbath day. So like I said, yeehaw, it's not in the moral law. It's not, okay? Bad news. Is it in the natural law? Is it in the natural law? And we all know the answer. Look at it from Genesis 2. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Here's the key concept, write it in. The seventh rest cycles are part of God's plan even for new covenant believers. And disobeying Sabbath will have consequences. So let me summarize this. The processes going on in everybody's body are subjected to these foundational laws. And this is true whether one is Jewish or not. In fact, ready for this? And this is, I could spend a whole week on the medical, physiological issues showing that this is true. 
The reality is the rate at which the body decays is directly related to how we respond to God's natural law. Don't take care of it, it'll get its rest. That, and, that, and we'll see, this is way more than just a day off, right? It, it, it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna happen. That's the way it's built. So the, the length of the exile is an announcement to all of us. Listen, folks, the land will get its rest. It will. The land will get its rest, guaranteed. You don't have to give you the land its rest, but it's gonna take it back, and boy, that can be painful. Trust me. So let's apply. This is a good message to do Mostly application after all that beaten about the head and face with, with the Old Testament, right? Ready? Number one. Application number one. God will bless a church that blesses their leaders with Sabbath and sabbatical. See, this is the upside. This is the upside. And you probably know, renovation has blessed its pastors with the expectation of Sabbath and with the blessing of sabbatical since it was planted. Pastor Josiah just got back from a sabbatical and Pastor Kurt is just starting. Um, And what you may not know is that I wrote a book for pastors called Time Bomb in the Church, Diffusing Pastoral Burnout. It's not fake, it's actually real. Um, And um, so I've been uh, all over everywhere. In fact, in this this three-week block, I'll be at three districts speaking to hundreds of pastors about making them feel way worse than you will feel this morning. Um, And and so... um, Here's one of the things I want to say to us. I've heard all across these places I've gone. I've heard from lay people, ready? I think I, is it up there? Here's what I've heard. Some version of this. The uh, I work hard too. Ready? I don't get a sabbatical, so why should pastors get a sabbatical. Now, the good news is I'm a layman, right? I've kept my day job, right? If Pastor Kirk kicks me out, I'm still tenured, and if I don't do anything illegal, I, I'm, I still got a job, right? So, so, um, so let me give you my really tiny version of the answer to that stupid question. You ready? I'm going to use the sheep-shepherd metaphor that Jesus uses. Now, most of us think, oh, isn't that beautiful? Jesus gave the sheep Lamb metaphor, because lambs are just so cute. Yeah, it has nothing to do with that. You know why? You know why Jesus uses that metaphor? Because sheep are notoriously stupid. Okay, you ready? Now, now, now watch, watch. I know. It's okay, you can laugh. It's, we're laughing at us, right? Um, here, here's a key. Do you know that if you put a bunch of sheep in a pen, you open the gate, and you put a stick at 12 inches, and the first sheep jumps over the stick, and then if you pull the stick out, you know what all the rest of the sheep do? they jump over the stick. So, if one of the really gutsy sheep, particularly unintelligent sheep, goes over the cliff, guess what happens? Ever seen a church like that? You ready, everybody? When the sheep lead, the flock dies. Listen, everybody, when the sheep lead, the flock dies. That's why we need a shepherd. Okay, now, listen, let this soak in. The good news is, we're lay people, most of us here. There's a couple real pastors, okay? But most of us here, we're lay people. And you ready? We're really small beans to the enemy. You know why? How's the enemy get sheep? The predator waits in the, in the woods, waiting for a stray. And that's why a really good shepherd, they use the rod first, nice and, excuse me, the staff first, nice and gentle. I'd use the rod first, but the, our pastors use the staff first, okay? And if that doesn't work, then they flip it around and they smack them on the side, right, up the side, and, and they go hauling back into the flock. And my understanding is in Australia, if that, the rod doesn't work, they break one of their legs, to which I always think, I'm sure glad God's not Australian, aren't you? The staff, the staff and the rod have been plenty for me. Any other testimonies? So that's what the good shepherd does. Now, you ready? What are the sheep doing? The predator is hidden in the wood. And the sheep are sitting out here just eating our cud. Feed me, feed me, feed me, pastor, right? We're eating our cud. But you know what the shepherd's doing all the time? The shepherd knows exactly where the enemy is. They're intentionally always paying attention to that. And let me, t- let me ask you this question. Why does the enemy want to take out the shepherd more than anybody else? Oh, do we not have 
enough testimonies in this generation. You know what? You can have a marriage come apart in the church, and the church is great at helping people. But you know what happens if the pastor's marriage comes apart? The church tanks. You see, if the enemy can get the shepherd, he gets almost all the flock. So listen to this, church. You need to understand this. Regardless of how much we work, how much pressure we have in our job, we have no sense of the massive spiritual weight pressing on our pastors all the time. You see, we know nothing of what it means to be the primary target of the evil one. He's happy for us to be stupid and stray off. He'll, he'll be happy to take us, but he wants the leader more than anybody. So why do we bless our pastors with sabbaticals? Because it shows that we're grateful that they're willing to take the attacks for us. It shows that we understand they face the enemy in ways that we never will. It shows that we're serious about doing our part to make sure they get refilled so they can live balanced lives, so that they can be, you ready? So they can be deep in the Lord and have great resources and they can lead us with wisdom and holiness and power and faithfulness. There's a lot at stake here, folks, a lot at stake. Before we leave, I have two thing, more things to say. However much you pray for Pastor Kurt, pray way more. And however much you pray for your pastoral staff, pray way more for them. And number two, if you didn't bring a gift card for Pastor Kurt last week, shame on you. <laughs> Send one to the church and we'll figure out how to get to him, even though he may be in Iceland for all we know, okay? So, so we'll figure out a way. And then the other thing I would say is, if you gave one last week, great, and send in another one, okay? Application number two, here we go. The Sabbath is supposed to be a weekly reminder that all of my time belongs to God. Everybody got that? Sabbath is the time equivalent to tithing in the financial realm. You see, the reason God commanded Sabbath was because it provided a weekly reminder that all of our time belongs to him. It's exactly like the concept of tithing. So here's our affirmation. We don't own anything. We're just stewards. Nothing belongs to us, not our talents, our possessions, our children, our profession. Nothing belongs to us. And Sabbath was given us to blow a big hole in the mysterious, absurd concept we have that our time belongs to us. Every second comes as a gracious gift from God. And that's why he wanted us to frequently, every week be reminded, I'm giving you this because I remember it's all yours. Number four, ready? If you want to live more, uh, more with more balance, you may have to live with less income. Ooh. See, one reason why many of us have so much, um, have, one, one, we have to work so much is because uh, we want so much stuff. Um, so I'm gonna shorten this part because I don't wanna go long today because we're gonna have time at the end um, to just be with the Lord. But um, this really is important. Identify what really matters in life and then don't let the essentials get stolen by things that matter way less. Number five. Sabbath is one of the Lord's, one way the Lord keeps us from depending on ourselves rather than him. Now look at the seventh rest cycles one more time. How did God take care of their needs when they stopped working? Well, the easy answer is the weekly Sabbath that they took, God was amazing. Before sun went down on Friday, he gave them a double portion of the manna, right? So they wouldn't have to gather manna so that they could eat on the Sabbath day. And what would have happened if God hadn't come through with the double portion? Well, you know, they could, so they could, fast, they could fast a day a week, right? Um, but what about the sabbatical year? <laughs> uh, see, God knew the plan was horrifying to them, so look at back in cha uh, chapter 25 of Levit Leviticus, I love this. Um, here's, what, here's Moses speaking for God, and then this amazing, reasonable question comes up. You shall... Thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out. 
that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. And here comes the reasonable question, right? But what if you say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year if we do not sow or gather our crops? Um, But you ready? The situation is actually way worse than it looks. Write these in, you ready? The reality is number one, their survival wasn't just in question for one year, but two. Ready? Here's how, here's how bad a shape they're in. They are in really bad shape. Oh, it's worse on the other side. Um, okay, you ready? Here's how bad it is. Here's your six, and here's your seven, and here's your eight, and here's your nine. They're going into year seven, and in, in year seven, there's no harvesting, right? They can't go out and harvest. There's no harvesting. Harvesting. But they also can't sow in the seventh year. So guess what happens in year eight? There's no harvest because they didn't sow because they were lazy and didn't, didn't, didn't work in the seventh year, right? there. So, so this is trouble, ready? Number two, here's your blank. God was placing them in a position where they had to rely on him alone for their survival for two whole years. But are you ready for this magnificent godly plan? Look at the question again, verse 20. If you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year, you ready for this? That it will bring forth the crop for three years. Do we have a great God? Look at this, look at this. Then when you're sowing the eighth year, you can eat from the old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when the crop comes in. I want you to know something. This has convicted me and changed my life. Because Dan thinks Dan can get an awful lot done with Dan's strength. And look what I've been cutting off. Three, God's incredible plan. Three years of food for one year of work. What an amazing concept, but here's the test. Do we really believe that he'll take care of everything even when we cease toiling to give our bodies the Sabbath they deserve? Do we really believe that he will supply all our needs if we aren't overworking? Application number six, ready? Here you go. When you overwork, you're actually less productive in the long run. I'm gonna, again, skip a bunch of stuff here, but I want you to see this quote. Guess what? It's the natural law, so guess what? Scientists have figured it out. And look at this, you know that, that the scientists call this the law of diminishing returns. Look at it. When a person or a machine or a system tries to work more, be more productive by working beyond their capacity, ultimately, efficiency decreases. So there comes a point, you ready? Ironically, working more produces less, and the system breaks down, right? So here's the key concept, write it in. No matter how smart, diligent, I'm now gonna describe you, how smart, diligent, talented, educated, and committed I am, here's the key, it doesn't matter if you're a 10 in everything. Look at this, in my strength, in my strength, it's absolutely impossible for me to get more than one year's harvest for one year's work. Let me ask you, no matter how amazing you are, have you been willing to do what you can do with what you got? You know what we're missing? The spectacular miracle that nobody can explain and so people can say, that couldn't have been Dan, that must have come from somewhere else. A testimony to the greatness of the power of God. So, it takes humility. Who would have thought? The Sabbath is about humility. I don't depend on me. I depend on one and him alone. So, ready? Application number seven. Obeying God's call to Sabbath and balance puts me in a position to see and hear and know things that I'll never experience otherwise. If you don't get anything else this morning, I want you to read what we just wrote in. 
Obeying God's call to Sabbath and balance puts me in a position to see and hear and know things that I'll never experience otherwise. I want you to think about this. Let's go to the model, capital M. Jesus only had three and a half years to save the entire world. So he obviously had no time for anything but preaching and teaching and healing and meeting needs, right? He had no time to waste by himself in solitude or resting. After all, he had the most important mission in the history of the universe. No time to waste. So, you ready for one of the most out of place texts in all of scripture? Jesus' ministry is now in full swing and look in Luke chapter five, it says this, but the news about him was spreading even further and large crowds, listen everybody, large crowds, large crowds were gathering to hear and to be healed of their sicknesses. So here we have these multitudes, people who need to be saved, people who need to be healed and only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus. Pentecost hasn't come yet, so his apostles have no clue. There's no replacement for Jesus, you ready? So the next verse is completely out of place. Look at this, verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. How could Jesus justify leaving these desperate, needy people to go to the wilderness often? Think of it. They're desperate, dying, hurting, lost people, and he's going to the wilderness often? Uh, this is just, this is really crazy. Um, so, why would he do it? I think the answer is obvious, and I just want you to know I'm now teaching in hypocrisy, but at least I'm confessing my hypocrisy. Um, it's hard to read it. The reason why he went away is because more than anything else, Jesus wanted to know his father. See, when Jesus went to the temple and he's saying things like, you're the air I breathe. Things like we, we sang this morning, you're everything I need. Things like, I'm desperate for you. When Jesus went to temple and sang those songs, guess what, he wasn't lying. He wasn't just singing songs. Jesus actually couldn't live, couldn't minister, couldn't heal without the Father. Everything John says over and over again, everything he did came from the Father. Let me ask you, how much of what you do comes from you instead of from the Father? See, what's happened is we've allowed other interests and priorities to replace our wilderness times with God. We've jettisoned the one thing that mattered most to Jesus. Now, you might think that's a pretty bold statement, maybe outrageous, but look what sociologist George Barna found in his research that evaluated the time that the Amer American believers spent, spent concentrating on God. This to me is a staggering statistic, and remember, this is self-reported by Christians. Write it in, here it is, the average Christian in America spends seven times as much time viewing electronic media and entertainment, which he defines as TV, movies, games, texting, tweeting, social media, online. Ready again? The average Christian in America spends seven times as much time viewing electronic media and entertainment than in all forms of personal and corporate worship, devotions, prayer, and Bible study combined. His surveys have identified that the typical Christian, if the studies are true, studies scripture so little that we're basically becoming biblically illiterate. But fortunately, it's just the word of God. Um, what's missing? Balance. See, there's nothing wrong with hard work or recreation or entertainment. There's nothing wrong with sports, video games, right? There's, watching TV, surfing the net, there's, there's nothing wrong, but when it steals our desire to really know God, it's a calamity. Now compare this, compare this to what we're really supposed to be hungry for. Look with me at Psalm 27, four. 
One thing I have asked that I shall seek, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. See, David was a king. He could have had anything he wanted. But look at his one thing. Imagine a man in his position boiling all of his desires down to wanting to be with God, seeing his beauty and meditating on him. A couple of things that I just skipped over that I do want to come back to for a second because I want to make sure we realize how much more this is about a day off than, a, than just a day off. So excuse me while I scan my notes. Um, look at the two sides, the two ditches. Sleep. Too little or too much. See, it's, the, it's, it's balance. Spending money. Are you a hoarder, you know, proud of your savings? Um, or um, do you really like to spend? No elbows, please. Um, work versus rest. Are you a workaholic or uh, are you a sloth? See, both things aren't right. Exercise. Has busyness kept you from the priority of caring for your body or... Do you spend too much time at the gym? Is it one of your idols? Now, sports. Has the amount of time that you spend on watching or playing sports taught your children that it's a major priority in your life? And let me just ask you straight up. Do sports keep you from worshiping with the body of Christ? Oof. How about electronic media? Uh, does your... Um, does your family talk in the car or is everybody on their device? <laughs> um, did you know that texting, Twitter, surfing the net, Instagram and TikTok can steal your relationships? Just fill in the blank, all of them. I've just mentioned a few. <laughs> what, what's a crack up is you've probably noticed right now for the first time, some of you just put your iPhones down for the first time during the message. Um, credit card usage, ouch. If you can't pay off your balance each month, then your desire to spend is running your life. Hobbies, fantasy sports. Now, did you know slothfulness, slothfulness in the scripture is not just laziness? It's also spending a lot of time on trivia, on things that in the end don't matter. Fantasy sports. Not that it's not great and fun, but that it can take over Recreation, have you taught your children that corporate worship isn't as important as camping or hiking or biking and, or boating? And then here's the big one, dessert. Have I now made everybody mad? Um, this key concept, if you can go back and find it under number three. You ready? The key, Sabbath and balance are the, ready? They're the opposite of addiction. Let that sink in. Sabbath is the opposite of being pulled by one side or the other, the ditches on both sides of life. Now back, sorry, but back to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, listen to this. As the deer longs, that's the Hebrew word. Your scripture may say pants. Longs for the water, so my soul longs for you. My soul thirsts for you, O God, the living God. Psalm 62, and this is the killer. Look at this first phrase. I can never get to the rest of Psalm 62. My soul waits in silence for God only. Now let me tell you the three things I hate about the start of that verse. I don't like to wait. I don't like silence. And I have a lot of other interests besides God. My confession. Listen to this. My soul, listen to a king who could have had anything he wanted. And listen to what he says. My soul waits in silence for God only. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you actually waited 
in silence until God himself showed up in your life. Listen to another familiar passage. Be still and know that I am God. We probably all know that. You ready? Here's the corollary. Here's the American modern version in the opposite direction. Write it in. Here's your blanks. Stay busy and occupy every moment with activity and constantly have your device close at hand and always stay on the move. And you ready? And miss knowing me. God, help me. Think about this. We'll never really know God until we slow down. But we're surrounded by a conspiracy of continuous noise, activity, electronics, uninterrupted mental overload. That's our surrounding. But here's the thing. Ultimately, we can't blame our culture. The fact is we've made a choice. Now, we come from a long string of these choices among God's people. Look what it says in Isaiah 30. We're just about done here. Isaiah 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. I was on my device. So, we've allowed questions. Pastor Josiah, come on up. We've allowed quietness and rest and balance to be stolen from us but it's not the culture's fault. We've made a choice. Listen to this again. Put everything else out of your mind right now and listen to this. My soul waits in silence for God only. When a person gets to this point, they'll settle for nothing else. They won't accept counterfeits for God. See, this person will have other interests and hobbies and pastimes, but you know what? They'll have only one real passion. Their passion will be to know God in his fullness and to be bathed in the beauty of his presence. Well, let me ask you, whether you're young or old, whether you're in school or working in a profession, or whether you're in what I'm told is the busiest time of life, retirement, totally filled up time apparently, Regardless of where you are in your situation in life, I put this up on the screen for you. I want to ask you to be brutally honest with yourself about this. Do you really want to know God? Or is he simply an appendage to your busy life? The word is clear. Son, daughter, be quiet. Slow down. Come to me in stillness. Stop talking. Stop running. Stop working. Be silent and know me. I want us to look last before we respond at a remarkable insight from a century ago by G.K. Chesterton. You'll see some of the language is older, but we understand it. Look at this. Satan's masterpiece isn't the derelict on Skid Row. Satan's masterpiece is the well-dressed man or woman sitting in church who has learned how to play the religious game but who doesn't actually know God. Help us, O Lord. So as we close, I'd like us to consider what the word has called us to. Listen, it's a call to Sabbath, a call to simplify, a call to quietness, rest, silence, It's a call to get rid of a bunch of stuff, to reject a culture of extremes, a call to leave the slavery and the bondage of a frantic life and to step into the freedom of walking with our master. I'm a Martha. Remember her storming around in the kitchen saying, what in the world could be more important than feeding God when he's hungry? And Mary just wants to sit at Jesus' feet and adore him. And through the ages, the scripture rings out. Mary chose 
the better thing. So I found that the altar is a great place to bring our baggage to the Lord, to hand it over to him, so he can change us into who he wants us to be. This morning, the altar will be a great place, I think, to bring your time, your schedule, your smartphone, your work, your activities, your plans, your hobbies, your schoolwork, to bring your whole life and say, Lord, I've been doing it wrong. I don't want frantic anymore. I want to know you and to just bring that to him. Perhaps in these few minutes that we've set apart, some couples will come together and will provide, it'll provide a space that's maybe the first time you've had to be able to just talk without noise for a long time. And we've intentionally left a lot of time extra at the end for prayer and worship. And by the way, please don't go 20 minutes early to pick up your kids and uh, use this as an early uh, you know, deliverance uh, from the message to, to, to go pick up your kids because the pastor, children's pastor would be really mad. And I know the children's pastor really well. So there may be many who've realized that you've gotten caught in the frantic lifestyle of a world over the edge. You realize that balance has been stolen from you. That it's been a long time since you laid down your work and your activity and everything else to be silent. So during these moments, some of you may want to come to the altar. Stand with me. Everybody stand. Then we'll be seated again, but stand with me. Now some may prefer to kneel at your seat um, or to move to sit with someone you'd like to pray with. But regardless, if the Holy Spirit has shown you some areas of your life where you need to commit to change, to simplify, to rearrange your priorities. I invite you to come or to take whatever posture you want to. And in these extra moments that we have, just to be quiet with the Lord. So come or sit or gather together as Pastor Josiah sings. Just come.